coming up. I think what's the weirdest part, um, probably the most disturbing about the day of the murders is the fact that it starts off just like any day. Like he goes in like he's just going to work and everything's fine. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. In the spring of 1976, William Bradford Bishop, an Ivy League-educated diplomat, is living in Bethesda, Maryland, with his wife, three kids, and mother. Bishop, a Foreign Service officer at the State Department, and his family lived in Carter Rock Springs, just off River Road, outside the Beltway. And he wanted to portray this perfect family that was kind of carefree, had lots of money. On March 1st, 1976, Bishop leaves work at about 5.30 p.m. He tells his boss that he's not feeling well, but says he'll be back to work later that week. Bishop was at work that day. He told his supervisor he was not feeling well and he needed to leave. At about 6 p.m., he drives to a Sears Roebuck store in Bethesda, where he buys a two-and-a-half-gallon gas can and a two-and-a-half-pound sledgehammer. Then he went home with a heinous plan in place. For this episode, I'm lucky enough to be joined by not one, but two reporters who've been looking into this case. Leslie Ackerson, anchor and reporter with WBIR in Knoxville. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks, Reed. And John North, senior investigative journalist with WBIR. How's it going? Good, Reed. Good to be with you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks to both of you. So, Leslie, tell me a little bit about the Bishop family, who they were, what their lives looked like back in 1976. I think from the outside, the Bishop family was kind of your 70s idyllic, you know, husband and wife, good looking, these three kids involved in sports. They went on these, you know, lavish vacations. They went skiing. They went across the country, lived in a really nice neighborhood, kind of country club, good looking all around 70s family, or at least, you know, that's what their neighbors seem to think. He had a good job with the State Department and she stayed home with the kids, was more of um, like a homemaker. And again, they had these three boys that were good looking and and active and, you know, seemed, seemed like a great, great little all-American family. Yeah, you mentioned the dad worked with the State Department, uh, his name being William Bradford Bishop. Um John, what else can you tell us about this guy? How did you know his family, friends, and, and coworkers know him? Well, he was, for one thing, a very ambitious man. He was well-educated. He'd been to Yale. Not all of us get to go to Yale, so he had that going for him immediately. Uh, had sort of an air of uh, privilege or uh, a sense of destiny, I think, about him. Leslie might agree with me. He was the kind of guy that if you're designing somebody who is going to do well in the world he would be kind of the person that would come out of that mold. He he was just somebody who you would have thought on paper appeared to be bound for greatness. And he certainly thought that's what was going to happen to him. But in fact, he had some flaws. Yeah. And Leslie, I think the way you phrased it was um, from the outside looking in that this was a picture perfect family. You know, as far as anyone outside of the family knew, things were going really, really well for them. This family had a ton going for them. Through your reporting, though, you were able to sort of peel back the curtain on this family and learn that there might be some some cracks in that facade. What can you tell me about that? 
Yeah, I think for one thing, they appeared to have a little bit more wealth than it seemed. They were more running out of money, even though they had, you know, before taken some of these more lavish vacations. I think they went skiing in like the Swiss Alps and some stuff like that. And I think uh, Mr. and Mrs. Bishop were having a little bit more issues. If I believe correctly, she was a homemaker, but was maybe interested in going back to work. Um, John can maybe uh, fill in more on that. And I don't think, you know, he was, Mr. Bishop was super fond of her maybe getting more involved and in, in doing something like that. This was the more traditional um, way of doing things back in the late 1950s. It would seem odd today, but in the late 1950s, if you got married, usually the woman st- did stay home and she raised the kids and it was up to the sort of a la the Mad Men era. It was kind of up to the man to be the breadwinner and and Brad Bishop kind of fit that, that profile. Uh, but they, as Leslie says, they really didn't have a lot of money. They probably lived beyond their means, and that was probably his fault. And so then, of course, it's March 1st, 1976, when Brad Bishop, this father, apparently decides to to destroy this life that he's built. I'll throw this out there for either or both of you, but can you walk us through his actions on that day leading up to the murders? Leslie, why don't you start? Sure. Um, I think what's the weirdest part, um, probably the most disturbing about the day of their murders is the fact that it starts off just like any day. Like he goes in like he's just going to work and everything's fine. And I believe it was that day at work or possibly a couple of days before he'd found out that he was not going to get this promotion that he had hoped for. And he was obviously very upset by that since he did have this high opinion of himself that he was bound for greatness. So he tells his coworkers that he's going home, that he doesn't feel good. Um, and he leaves early, but on the way home, he takes a couple pit stops. He picks up a shovel from a hardware store, uh, some gas, some gasoline. Um, and then he takes out some money as well. Um, and then he heads home and I'm not sure of the exact time when he gets home, but the whole family is there. I believe the mom was, uh, his mother lived with them. Uh, his his mother lived with them. And I believe she was out walking uh, the dog. Is that correct, John? Yep. That she was out walking the dog when Bishop got home, but the three boys were at home. The mother was at home, uh, but he had left work early that day. That was the only thing really that his coworkers had seen, but it was just kind of a, started off as what was a completely normal day. But once he got home, that's when everything completely flipped on its head the moment he walked through the doors. And so, John, what actually happens that night then? Well, it's horrific to retell. Um, just to be blunt about it, it's horrific. As Leslie said, uh, he had decided in his mind that for to fix his troubles, he was going to eliminate his family. And he started with his wife, Annette. And he had, uh, in addition to the shovel that he'd purchased, he had a hammer. And as the sheriff describes it, he, he bludgeoned her to death in a horrible manner that reflected great anger. This was not just somebody trying to be sort of, uh, surgical or medical about killing somebody. He took out a lot of whatever this internal rage was he had on his wife. They had been married by this point 16 years or so. We haven't found any evidence that she had done anything that was bad that would have, uh, you know, drawn his anger. But she was the first person to go, I guess, get rid of the adult in the house first. And then, unfortunately, he went into the boys' bedrooms. He had three boys, as we've said. 
who ranged from a teenager to the youngest, was, I believe, about age five. Very sad. They were already dressed for bed by this point. The sheriff says they were in their pajamas in their beds. And he, one after another, uh, uh, killed them again by uh, bashing their their heads in. Um, and then finally, as if that wasn't bad enough, his mother, his own mother, who had been out with the dog, at some point came back into the house. He was ready for her or ready enough. The sheriff says they could tell from the blood trails that she was the last one and he attacked and killed his mother uh, and left her in the house dead. So now you have five people who were once part of a seemingly nice family all dead in this house in Potomac, Maryland. So he, he kills five people that night, his wife, his three kids, and his mother. What does he do after that? Where does he go from there? Well, he loads up the family station wagon with these these bodies, basically driving it like a hearse through the middle of the night. And I think one of the things that shocked John and I the most is we mentioned they had a family dog, Leo. He was a golden retriever that the mother had been walking when she came back in and, and he killed her. So he brings the dog with him. He puts the dog in the family station wagon, loads up the five bodies of his family members in the back of the car and starts driving through the night hours away. And John, where do these bodies end up being discovered? Bishop, for whatever reason, and we don't know, you have to assume he had some knowledge of the area, but he picked a very remote part of North Carolina off a logging road. How, how he got there, I don't know. Nobody knows. We would have reported it. But he, again, as Leslie said, he'd been driving for hours when he finally picked this spot, this remote spot in, in North Carolina, and he drove into the woods uh, on this uh, fairly primitive road, I think it was either gravel or something like that, and found a spot that he liked uh, off to the side and began to dig because, as we said, he had purchased that shovel just hours before at the hardware store in the Potomac, Maryland area. And he dug, but n- not that I've ever dug a, a hole to kill people, or to hide bodies, but you know, it is a lot of work to dig a hole if you're just going to bury one person. He had to try and dig a hole to contain five people, which he didn't have the time or the patience to do. It's clear from the evidence. He he did, if you will, I guess in his mind, the best that he could do, probably working very quickly, but he didn't fully uh, bury the bodies. Uh, he He dumped them into this a hole that he had dug in the woods. And then, um, Leslie, I think he poured gas on him, didn't he? That's right. He poured gas on it and lit it on fire and left. But there was a ranger working, I think, looking for things like wildfires that, you know, seemed to happen that was in a, a watchtower nearby and saw the fire. The ranger went out there in the time that Bishop left between the ranger getting there, investigators now think it was just maybe like minutes, like he would have almost seen his car leaving. And this ranger pulls up and, you know, puts out this fire or sees the fire and like sees the the body parts and sees, oh my gosh, what is happening um, and, and that's when they start calling in, you know, obviously reinforcements from local law enforcement in that area that this, this ranger has just found these five bodies in the middle of nowhere that someone has murdered and, and burnt. So we started in Maryland. 
They find the bodies in North Carolina. Our listeners are probably wondering why we have two reporters from Tennessee. Um, how does this end up then being a, a, a Tennessee case? Ultimately, in mm, roughly mid to late March, suddenly his the station wagon is found in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which borders two states uh, or, or takes up parts of two states, eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina. It's about 520,000 acres. It's the most visited national park in the country, in part because of its proximity to population centers. And that's where Brad Bishop ended up driving that station wagon, that Chevy station wagon with the dog. So the car is in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Bishop's gone. Are we to assume then that he went off on foot in the national park? I think that's one of the great mysteries about this story is we have no idea. A ranger came upon the car and thought, wow, this car's been here for a while. This is a backpacker. You know, they have been back by now. It's when they ran the plates and made the connection to Maryland. Um, But by the time, you know, any authorities got down from Maryland to start really, you know, scanning the park, he had a head start. He had time. If he wanted to go become a backcountry hiker, get on the uh, Appalachian Trail, he could have done that. If he had wanted to go into town and hitchhike, he could have done that. He had time. He had had a head start to go anywhere he wanted. And I think that's kind of the fascinating thing now is if he is still alive, he'd be a very old man, late 80s, I believe. But he could be living up in a cabin and the Smokies under a different name, uh, looking completely different, or he could be somewhere else in the world. He could be in California living on a beach. He could have left the country easily. Uh, things just didn't happen as fast, I think, in the 70s. And that's kind of hard for us to understand with all the you know crime, true crime we see today and how fast it seems that law enforcement can work. It took so much time to piece together the murder scene back home, the car in the Smokies and the burned bodies in North Carolina that Bishop had some time, especially if he had planned it out to go anywhere. So he could be dead. He could be alive. Who knows? So at the end of the day, we're left with two huge questions. The first we've talked about a little bit. Where is this guy? The second, and and Leslie, I'll, I'll pitch this to you. Do we have any indication as to why he did this? You know, I think he in a way, follows that that serial killer, that psychopath persona. And maybe he hit it. You know, you look back at some of the, the most infamous killers like Ted Bundy, um, good-looking guy, very likable. I think that's kind of what Brad Bishop was like too. Good-looking, he was smart, but, you know, that doesn't mask what's going on deep down inside their, their head. And I think those kind of people that fall in that category, sometimes there's, there's just no explanation. You're just in, and you're in, you're in shock. Uh, but they have these things going on in their mind that no one else knows of. And I think it was just one of the, he just clearly had some, some issues, some psychological issues that caused him to do something so terrible. He had ambitions of of being an ambassador one day, and that's a pretty big deal. It doesn't it's hard to become an ambassador, but that's what he wanted to do. And I think he set a goal for himself to become an, a, an ambassador by the age of 50. Well, it wasn't happening, and I think he was very unhappy about that. The plan was not uh, unfolding as it was supposed to. And I guess if you're a narcissist and you you are somebody who thinks, well, 
I made this family, I can destroy it and I'll start over, then maybe that's one sort of to Leslie's point about a mental illness issue then or a, a mental flaw, if you will, then that can make you think, all right, so the method for this will just be I'll eliminate the family and uh, I'll go start again somewhere else. For anyone listening to this, the FBI is still searching for William Bradford Bishop. If you have any information, you can contact your local FBI office or the FBI's national number, 800-CALL-FBI. Let them know why you think you may have seen Bradford Bishop and where you or, or someone you know saw him. Leslie and John, before I let you go, I should let our listeners know, if they're interested in this story, you guys have a video series and a podcast with WBIR, both of which have featured this case. Where can our listeners find that? Yeah, thank you, Reed. I'll start and then Leslie can finish. We we have a, a podcast called Appalachian Unsolved, and this is one of the cases that we've highlighted. And we, we really would appreciate it if you go and listen to it, listen to the other cases if you want. We live in a very interesting part of the world. But you can you can access that podcast through the various uh, vendors, or if you will, uh, Apple, I think Spotify, there's some other ones. And then, Leslie, you want to talk about the uh, website? Yeah, of course. Um, on WBIR.com, you can go to the top of the tab section and there's an Appalachian Unsolved tab. And that's where we have uh, numerous cold cases that we've covered all across the East Tennessee area. This is a two-parter series. So there will be a part one and a part two on the Brad Bishop murder case if you want to watch that. And a number of other ones as well that we've covered in this uh, this area that have been fascinating to us, ones that law enforcement are are still looking to solve today. And, you know, it's never, it's never too late. You know, there's been so many cases Cases especially that have been highlighted in the media in recent years that the suspects are old people now, still alive. So there's still a chance that Brad Bishop could be out there and there's never say never that this couldn't be solved. Well, everyone, go check out Appalachian Unsolved. I'm, uh, I'm actually binging my way through the podcast right now. It is fantastic. It's packed with great reporting, great storytelling. Uh, Leslie Ackerson and John North from WBIR in Knoxville, thank you so much for sharing the story with us. Thank you. Thanks. And thanks to you for joining me on today's episode of The Daily Crime. We're here every weekday with a new episode, so make sure you hit subscribe or follow so that all of our episodes show up automatically in your podcast feed. If you're looking for more, Will Johnson and I also take turns hosting Vault Studios' weekly podcast, True Crime Chronicles, which you can find wherever you listen to The Daily Crime. Until next time, for Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. 